Good morning. I was laughing with Tanner earlier. I don't know where he, there he is. Um, saying how I, I can't I can't preach with the little ear mic like Tim does. He's got his table up here and his iPad. He's, he's a really hip guy. I'm like the most uncool 20-something-year-old, so this is, this is what you get, a music stand here. Um, if you would, take your Bibles and go ahead and open to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. As you do, let me just say, I, I am very thankful to have the opportunity to, to preach this morning. Um, it's certainly been a special time in the life of our church to be together as one body rather than some of us being in the chapel and some of us being in the, in the sanctuary. Uh, I'm normally in the chapel, so on Sunday mornings when I've preached, I've had to leave those that I'm normally with, and so it's nice for us to, to kind of all be together. Uh, it's, it's a fun treat for me this morning. Hosea chapter 3. Hosea stands at the beginning of the book of the Twelve. Um, or sometimes called the Twelve Minor Prophets. Minor, not because they're less significant than um, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but simply because they're shorter. Uh, And in general, we in the church in America do not ever, well, hardly ever explore any of the prophets. We know particular passages, think of Isaiah 53, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We know that one, or Jeremiah 29, 11, for, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a, a future and a hope. We know these specific passages and maybe a few others, but we really don't know the prophets. I don't know the prophets. But the more and more I look into them, the more and more I'm convinced that apart from the Gospels and Acts and maybe Romans, Galatians, maybe Ephesians, the prophets have more to say to our day and time than any other portion of Scripture. Of course, all Scripture has much to say to us, we know this, but the prophets applied the Word of God to their surrounding culture in a way that is very instructive for our time. We limit our definition of prophecy oftentimes to prediction, but most of what the prophets spoke wasn't new. Certainly there was new material, but primarily the prophets applied God's truth to their political, social, and economic surroundings, their environment. They were masters, spirit-empowered masters of seeing the world around them through the lens of God's truth. And so when we talk about prophecy, don't necessarily think about prediction. There's some of that in there, but think primarily and more in terms of penetrating application of God's truth. And it's precisely at this point that I believe the prophets have much, much to say to our day and time. In general, our thinking is more shaped by our experiences, more shaped by our feelings than by Scripture. We often substitute the word feel for think. A person will need to make a decision and they'll say, I feel like I need to go this direction. 
catch myself doing this. I do this all the time. I feel like we need to do this or that. And this can lead oftentimes to our thoughts about God also being shaped more about our experience, or by our experiences and our circumstances and our feelings than by God's actual word. The prophets don't let us go too far down that road. Which is why I really believe that the neglect of their writings has been detrimental to the health and well-being of the worldwide church. We are going down a dangerous road when it comes to our perceptions of who God is and what His character is like. God in His being and in His character and in His actions is not defined by us, our feelings, our experiences, our cultures, or our values. He is only and ever rightly known through the revelation of Himself in His Word and His Son, and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see what I'm, I'm trying to say? We don't understand who God is and what He's doing based on what's happening around us or based on the feelings that we have inside of us. When we say that God is righteous... We don't take some some abstract concept of righteousness and and whatever we believe righteousness to be and apply that to God. We don't don't do that. That's not how it works. Instead, when we say that God is righteous, then our ideas about what it means to be righteous must be shaped by God Himself. God is not defined by righteousness. God defines righteousness. The same is true of our understanding about what it means to be just, what it means to be merciful, what it means to be holy. All of these characteristics of God or these these attributes of God are not applied to God. They're defined by God. They're made known by God. We know what righteousness is when we know God. We know what love is because we we know God. We know what holiness is because we know God. We don't think that God is holy because we have some some definition of holy that's apart from God. Right about now, you're probably doing two things. You're wondering why in the world you didn't have that second or third cup of coffee this morning. And number two, you're wondering what in the world any of this has to do with you and your life. I say that it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with your understanding of God. It has everything to do with your ability to worship Him according to spirit and truth. And that, according to Jesus in John 4.23, is exactly what the Father is looking for. Exactly what He's seeking. Worshippers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. A people who worship Him as He is, not as they misconstrue Him to be. This morning, as we begin to look at Hosea 3, we're going to see how all of this impacts our lives. Hosea 3 is small, only five verses long you've seen by now, and we're really only going to focus on the first two. But even being small, what the chapter reveals about God's love has gripped me in a way that very few passages have in all of Scripture. We, in our small group over this past summer, we went through the book of Hosea chapter by chapter, and we got to this chapter, chapter 3, and our discussion on it has just just gripped me in, in just a way that very few passages have. It's just 
continued to, to speak to me over these last several months. We talk a lot about the love of God. But unfortunately, much of our understanding, and, and I include myself in this, much of our understanding about God's love is not shaped so much by His truth and what God Himself has revealed, but by the love we experience all around us, the love we experience in everyday life. So what that means is we read that God is love, and what we do is we take a definition of love that we've gathered from our lives and our experiences, and we apply that, we, we superimpose that on God. We apply that definition to God. So, if my understanding of love was, was shaped by parents whose love and affection for me was contingent on or based upon my performance, whether or not I met their expectations, then when I hear God is love, I'm going to think that God's love is one based upon my worthiness, based upon whether or not I've lived up to His expectations. But think about the woman whose father abused her. He tells her repeatedly that he loves her. But he uses her. He degrades her. He victimizes her. This is not going to profoundly impact the way she receives the truth that God is love. How can it not? Is she not going to be afraid that God is only telling her that he loves her so that he can then take advantage of her? She's going to think God's not concerned with with her personal well-being. He's just using her like a palm to carry out his, his big overarching plan. Her individual worth is of no priority to him. In her mind, God cannot be trusted because love in her life has meant something so radically different than what love means according to God. And, and so are you, are you beginning to understand in some way why what we believe about God must be shaped, must be grounded solely in His revealed Word? Because when we take from our experiences, when we take from our feelings, when we take from our surroundings, when we take from these things perspectives about who God is and what He's doing, then we quickly fall into error. We can, believe, we can begin to believe things about God that just aren't true. We must be shaped by the Scriptures. So let's take a look at them. Hosea chapter 3, five verses. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is, and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of, God, children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear for the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. When you begin to read the prophets, you quickly realize that God was not opposed to commanding them to do very unusual things and even absurd things to get across 
uh, or to illustrate their truth, his truth to their people. And there's some pretty bizarre things in the prophets. Isaiah was commanded to walk around naked for three years as he prophesied. Ezekiel was strapped down on his left side for 390 days and then 40 days on his right side, all the while eating food baked on hardened cow dung. And yes, you heard that right. But these bizarre things didn't just affect them individually or personally. They also affected them relationally. Jeremiah was commanded never to take a wife. He was not given the opportunity to enjoy the the experience of marriage and children. In the case of Ezekiel, God actually struck his wife down dead in order to illustrate coming judgment. All of these strange occurrences and commands um, in the lives of the prophets had to do with judgment. But in Hosea's case, it's a different story. You see, instead of illustrating a coming judgment or wrath or punishment from God, what we see in Hosea 3 is is meant to point in part to a picture of of love as defined by God. It's an illustration that stuns in the very first verse of chapter 3. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and and is an adulteress. Now, reading over that, we may say, okay, well, he's got to go and marry a woman who's committing adultery. And maybe in our day and time, an age when adultery is referred to nicely as an affair or a website devoted to adultery like Ashley Madison has over 37 million paid users, maybe in our day and time, a command by God to Hosea like this doesn't shock us. Maybe it doesn't. But the power of this command is in its context which begins in chapter 1. There God tells Hosea, a well-respected, righteous man of God, to go and marry a prostitute and to have children by her. Why? Why is Hosea to do this? Because Israel, God's chosen people, has prostituted herself out to other nations and their gods. And God wants them to know how shockingly disgusting their actions are. But I want you to picture this in your mind. Hosea actually goes and does it. He takes Gomer, that's a name for you there, Gomer, a prostitute, as his wife and has two or three children by her. Can you imagine what this man went through? Allow, now, when you're talking about the prophets, when you're talking about things like this, illustrations and stories, allow your mind to imagine here. It's okay. It's what you're supposed to do. Can you hear the words of ridicule Hosea must have endured? Look at Hosea. He can't even get a decent woman. Hosea, what are you doing? She's been with every man down this street. What kind of sicko are you, Hosea? She's a lady of the night. The neighborhood whore. And you're making her your bride. What an awful experience this must have been for Hosea. But as terrible as chapter 1 was for Hosea, chapter 3 takes it to a whole different level. It's because Gomer is the woman in chapter 3 who is loved by another and is an adulteress. 
she is committing adultery against Hosea. So let's get this picture right here. Gomer had so hit rock bottom in her life that she had given herself to prostitution. But she was rescued by the righteous Hosea who took her from the streets, clothed her, fed her, gave her children, and at least in some part, in some measure, a status that she had lost through her illicit work. Certainly she of all people would be absolutely, positively, wholeheartedly committed to Hosea. In so many ways, Hosea was her savior. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 3, Gomer has given herself to the embrace of another man. She has rejected Hosea and sunk so low in her betrayal that she has given herself to this man as his slave. She is his property. So get this in your mind here. This is the key to the story here. Hosea is no longer just the guy who married a prostitute, as terrible as that label would have been. He is the man who married a prostitute and then was rejected by that prostitute. Can you you even begin to grasp in some part the shame Hosea was experiencing? How angry and betrayed and dumbfounded he must have been. How humiliated he must have felt. In an honor-shame society like Israel would have been, Hosea now occupies the lowest level of humanity. The people had thought prostitutes were the low of the low. But Hosea is even beneath them. He's not a prostitute. He's one rejected by a prostitute. Which makes God's command in verse 1 one of the most humiliating commands in all of Scripture Go get her again and love her. What violent feelings must have invaded Hosea's heart? You see, because Hosea is no longer the man who married a prostitute. And he's no longer just the man who was rejected by a prostitute. Now he's the man who married a prostitute, was rejected by that prostitute, and is now buying her back from the man she chose over him, the man she rejected him for. With every shekel of silver that he drops in the hand of the one enslaving his adulterating and prostituting wife, Hosea is losing the last ounces of honor and dignity that he has. And why is Hosea doing this? Because God wants his people to know how far he is willing to go after them. To know, rather, how low he is willing to go to bring them back. Every one of us, every single one of us, in this room, would have left Gomer in the filth and the slavery she so obviously wanted. We'd say, oh well, Hosea, you gave, her a sh- you gave her a chance. You gave her a shot. It's the best you could do. It's the best anyone could expect you to do. And that's the point. God wanted the people to know that his love was not like theirs. 
We speak of love as if, as if it is a, a force that takes us over and carries us where it will, as though we are powerless in its emotional grasp. But the love God speaks of is not passive. He's not carried about by uncontrollable emotions. There's no falling in love when it comes to God. As if he's somehow overwhelmed or overcome by, by an emotion he can't resist. The world speaks of love this way, but God does not. You can be sure Hosea did not have fuzzy feelings for Gomer. But God said, go again and love her. She may have sunk so low so as to not even deserve being mentioned by name in this passage, but go again and love her. She may have forfeited the right to even be called Hosea's wife. I mean, she's simply called a woman in this passage. She's so lost her identity in her sin. God says, go again and love her. Why? Because this is not a picture of human love. This is a picture of otherworldly love. And as unimaginably humiliating as this was for Hosea, all that he did was meant to point to an even greater humiliation endured by God. As righteous and God-fearing as Hosea was, he was still just a man. He was a sinner. And as such, the lowering of himself was only so impressive. But can we begin, can we begin to even speak of the humiliation of God? of the lowering and shaming of the King of all glory. Do we dare think of such things? Believe that He's done all of this, brothers and sisters, because He loves us? Because He loves you? Because He loves me? It goes beyond our capabilities to understand this. And again, that's the point. In the mid-1900s, there was a, a theologian named Karl Barth. He had some very troubling views on uh, Scripture and a number of other matters. Uh, but he was still one of the most prominent theologians and thinkers in church history. And this is what he wrote. And I want you to listen very carefully. The truth of the one God, as opposed to all divinities, all false gods invented by men, is seen in Jesus Christ in the fact that he is free, not only to be exalted, but also to be lowly. Not only to be remote and distant, but also to be near. The God who is great enough to be obedient and humble and small and therefore truly great wills to be and is this. This is what he does in Jesus Christ, and he does it for our sake. For us, to take us to himself, to reconcile us with him, to convert us to him, to save us, to restore his covenant with us, to be our God that we may live under and with him in his kingdom. End quote. In other words, God shows himself to be the one true, uncreated God by doing the very opposite of what every God invented by, women, by men and women does. False gods reflect the hearts of the men and women who create them. They're characterized by pride and power 
and prestige, because we as humans believe they must possess these things in order to command glory and respect, in order to maintain their status. These gods have to continue acting godly, however we, we would define godliness to be. But what Bart was saying is that the God of Scripture shows himself to be the true, uncreated God by doing the very opposite of what we would expect. We would never imagine a perfectly holy and righteous God exposing himself to shame and humiliation in order to purchase a people who despise him. This would never come to our minds. And yet, this is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has upended our assumptions about him. And by doing so, he reminds us yet again, his ways are not our ways. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is willing to be humiliated for your sake. Because he loves you with a love that we can't even conceive of apart from him and his revelation of it to us. And the revelation of God's humiliation on our behalf, his descent from his heavenly throne to redeem a broken people, this is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes about in Philippians. He wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The shame experienced by Hosea pointed to an even greater shame endured by God in Jesus Christ in order that the promises given through Hosea might be inaugurated and eventually fulfilled in the death and resurrection and coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate expression of how low God is willing to stoop, how much shame and disgrace He is willing to endure for the sake of His children, for the sake of you, and for the sake of me. How far He's willing to go to get us Jenna and I read the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, to our our two children, uh, Piper and Sully. If if you're a parent and you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you need to get it uh, soon. It is one of the best children's Bible storybooks. And in it, God's commitment to his people is repeatedly uh, described as his wonderful, uh, listen here, his wonderful never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the type of love God has for you. It's the type of, the kind of love that pursues the adulterer. It's the type of love that welcomes back the prodigal. What was the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, except a a retelling of Hosea 3 in a sense? How much shame the Father is willing to endure to welcome and to bring back His children. But even in all of this, don't in any way believe that Jesus' humbling of Himself detracts from His glory. 
Maybe left to our own wisdom and our own imaginations, we'd think such things. We'd think that he'd, he loses glory by doing this. But again, his ways are not our ways. This is why Paul, after describing the descent of Jesus, the, the humiliation of Jesus, then proclaims his exaltation. Therefore, he writes, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every, tongue, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." In the very humiliation of God that took place in the coming and living and dying and rising of Jesus Christ, we find the greatest and most glorious reason ever revealed to highly esteem and praise with all our hearts this great God. Believer, have you run from God? Have you given yourself to the service of some hard slave master? some sinful taskmaster, God loves you. Have you betrayed Him again? Have you failed Him again? Even this Sunday morning as you sit here, have you failed Him again? God loves you. Brother or sister, be comforted by this. His love is not like ours. We give up on one another. We hold grudges against one another. We love only insofar as we are loved back. We love as long as our love is deserved. But it is not so with God. And praise be to Him that it is not so with Him. This love not only comforts us, but it also confronts us with the command to love others as we ourselves have been loved. Only from a heart touched by the loving redemption of Christ can this type of love be expressed. This is the love of 1 Corinthians 13. A love that is patient and kind. A love that does not envy or boast. A love that is not arrogant or rude. A love that does not insist on its own way. A love that is not irritable or resentful. A love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but a love that rejoices with the truth while it believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And it is a love that is impossible for anyone who has not been transformed by the love of Christ. Because our love is either conformed to the love of this world, or it's been transformed by the love of God. What does this love look like? It can look as simple as a handshake. Following World War II, a, a military chaplain by the name of Henry Garricky had the the almost impossible task of ministering to the Nazi war criminals at the Nuremberg trials. Many of the architects of the Holocaust made up Gericke's flock at the Nuremberg prison. And Gericke was criticized for shaking hands with the prisoners, but this is what he said in response. I offered my hand in order that the gospel be not hindered by any wrong approach I may make. I was there as the representative of an all-loving father. I recalled, too, that God loves sinners like me. These men must, they must be told about the Savior bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross for them. Some came to faith. 
That's, that's the power of God's love. Nazi war criminals in the Nuremberg prison, in, in that prison, they will be before God in heaven worshiping their Savior because that's God's love. And it offends us. And insofar as it offends me that I will be standing beside a Nazi war criminal, insofar as it offends me, I have failed to grasp his love. There are people all around this community of Chelsea that need to know about this love. There are people all around this world that need to hear and to see and to experience this love. See, because this type of love still stuns us. It still goes against everything, everything the world teaches, everything that the world offers. My favorite book and movie is Les Miserables. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's one of the most remarkable stories ever written um, by Victor Hugo. And uh, if you're not, uh, I would highly recommend it. And in it, there's a, a scene that epitomizes Hosea 3. Fantine is a young woman who has hit rock bottom, uh, so much so that she's given herself to prostitution in order to uh, pay for her child's needs. Javert is a police inspector who knows nothing of grace. He's only law. Only law. What one sows, one reaps. Clean, cut, and dry. And the mayor is actually an escaped convict named Jean Valjean, who is the picture of a person transformed by God's love. And in the story, Fantine wrongly believes that it's the mayor who has caused all her hardships. And having been arrested because she's defending herself against a, a violent John, a violent uh, you know, customer, uh, the story goes on like this. This word mayor had a strange effect upon Fantine. She sprang to her feet at once, pushed back the soldiers with her arms, walked straight to the mayor before they could stop her, and gazing at him fixedly, with a wild look, she exclaimed, Ah, it is you then who are the mayor. Then she burst out laughing and spit in his face. The mayor wiped his face and said, Inspector Javert, set this woman at liberty. Javert felt as though he were on the point of losing his senses. He experienced at that moment blow on blow and almost simultaneously the most violent emotions that he had known in his life. To see a woman of the town spit in the face of a mayor was one thing so monstrous that in his most daring suppositions he would have thought it sacrilege to believe it possible. But when he saw this mayor, this magistrate, wipe his face and say, set this woman at liberty... He was stupefied with amazement. Thought and speech failed him. The sum of possible astonishment had been overpassed. He remained speechless. The prophet Zephaniah promised a, a day when God would silence the people with his love. And sure, this has to do with our anxieties and, and the worries of this life, but I've, I've often thought it might be meant in another sense as well. You see, I believe when we see God face to face, when we know as we are fully known, when we gaze upon this God who willingly endured humiliation for our sake, words will fail us. We talk about, oh, I want to ask him this, I want to ask him that. No, I, I, I think we'll stand there 
in stunned silence. And shouts of joy will come. They will most certainly come. It'll be the most happy and joyous place ever. But I wonder if it will come after a long, long period of stunned silence. In verse 5, Hosea promised that in the last days, God's people will come to him in a fearful awe. It's probably better translated a reverential astonishment. And I believe that. I look forward to that in Jesus Christ. But for now, we are not to remain silent. We can't. We can't afford to. Other people out there who have not known this love, who have not experienced this love, cannot afford for us to remain silent. We've experienced a love that others need to experience. May we do our part to make that happen. Let's pray. Lord, you are... Your love is beyond words. Um, And that's why when we talk about God's, God's love, your... Your love for us. We pray that we would not believe we're familiar with it. We barely know an ounce of the great love that you have for us. We see Jesus Christ enduring the temptations and the hardships and the hunger and the thirst and the shame and all of this. as he lives a perfect life on our behalf. And then, we, and then we see him nailed to a cross, naked and ashamed in front of people mocking him, spitting on him. This is, this is God on the cross. Then we see him laid in a tomb, a common tomb, a tomb not even fit for an earthly king. This is the heavenly king, the king of all glory, being laid in a hole in the ground, a hole in the side of a mountain. Then we see him rising again and saying he's not done with us yet. That even in the humiliation, even in the shame and the disgrace that he endured, he's not done with us yet. And Lord, even as we see all of this, we know, we know in our hearts how many times we've turned from him, how many times we've not believed in his promises, how many times we've been despairing of life itself because we've thought, this life is too difficult. It's not worth it. We want to turn away from you because we think it's not worth it to continue in steadfast faith. Lord, forgive us for that. Give us a new, a fresh, a fresh view of your love this morning through your prophet Hosea. We thank you for the faithfulness that he demonstrated so that we would have this picture, this unbelievable, unimaginable picture of the humiliation that you were willing to endure to go get your rebellious children back. And Lord, if we're here this morning and, 
and we feel like we can't come back, that you would never welcome us back. Lord, give us a fresh, new, a new vision of your love that welcomes back the prodigal. That no matter how far we've come, we've gone, your love goes farther and brings us back. Where sin has abounded, grace has abounded that much more. We praise you this morning for being that type of God. We can't conceive of this love apart from you. Let us not even try. And Lord, as we go from here this morning, as we, as we leave this building, we go out into this community, may we display this type of love. Not, let our love not be characterized by what the object of our love can give to us, whether someone is deserving of our love. We were never deserving of your love, and yet you freely gave it to us. May we then extend that type of love to our neighbors. God, we just want to give you glory this morning because of your great and astonishing love. For the unbeliever here this morning, the one who has never confessed that they are a sinner, for the one who has never placed their full faith and confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, may they see, O Lord, this God who is unlike every other God, the God who reigns over all false gods. He is the one true God because He was willing to do what we would never, ever imagine Him to do. And He came and He loves with a love that we, we see most clearly in Jesus Christ. May that person this morning know the hope and the love and the peace of salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn them from their sins. May they trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We praise you this morning. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand now as we enter this time of response. For the believer this morning, worship. Worship this great God who loves us with this type of love. If, you, if you're not a, a member of a church, if you've never professed your faith publicly through baptism, you can come forward. This is the time to just begin the process of doing that. If you're an unbeliever, see the God who did something we could never imagine and give your life to Him through confessing your sin and placing your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's sing.